0: Alright, welcome to Grace Community Church this morning. We come now to the preaching of the Word of God where we open the Scriptures together. And our convictions about, about the Bible play out. That the Bible is God's Word. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And we're about to gather around a text of Scripture and our heart all across the room. And I hope it's your heart this morning is that we would be addressed by God, that our God would speak to us. And so we're going to pray, and we're going to call on the Lord now in the name of Jesus, and we're going to ask for that, for that gift. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, and we proclaim that you are good. Lord, your word says that you're good to all. That You're kind to all, Lord. Your sun shines and Your rain falls on the just and the unjust. And Lord, we appeal this morning to Your goodness. And we ask in the name of Jesus that You would put Your goodness on display this morning. Lord, we ask for clarity from Your Word, that gift. Lord, we pray that You would cause it to fall upon us this morning. Lord, we ask for the clarity that we will have on the final day. As we stand before you, that clarity about our souls, we pray that we would have that same degree of clarity this morning. Lord, we ask for this sincerely, Lord. Let it come with tremendous power, that clarity, Lord, that all the voices of all the liars in all the world can't overthrow. That clear truth that you implant in the souls of men and women. Lord, speak to us from your word. We pray that you would convict us today. We pray that you would encourage us today and lift up our souls. Lord, we ask that the truth would reign in this place and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn to Matthew 13. Matthew chapter 13. And we're about to dive into a famous teaching of Jesus Christ called the parable of the sower. And that's the name that Jesus gives this teaching in Matthew 13. And one of the really unique things about this particular teaching that we're going to see this morning is that Jesus actually teaches this parable twice. And we're going to go through it twice together. Jesus teaches this parable the first time in public to the crowds. And we've talked about this some in recent weeks, and we're going to see that first time through this parable that that reveals something about the nature of our Lord Jesus, and we want to learn it. We want our knowledge of Christ to be sanctified by the truth of God's Word. We want to know our Lord rightly, like He is revealed in Scripture, not as we uh, 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 know Him to be intuitively. We want That knowledge shaped by God's word. And then we're going to see the second time Jesus teaches this parable in private to his disciples. And that second time through is going to reveal something about the nature of everyone who has ever heard the gospel. And just to make it more personal this morning, it's going to reveal something about the nature of the heart of every person in the room. In other words, Jesus is going to give us four categories this morning. That the heart of every hearer that sits in this room fits in this morning. And so we're going to give attention to God's word. And just as an extra encouragement to do that today, in Mark's version of this parable, Jesus says this in Mark 4:13. He says, If you don't understand this parable, how will you understand all the parables? In other words, there's something really foundational about the kingdom of God that Jesus is about to reveal in this teaching. And so I hope that's just extra encouragement that we lean in and have a heart to hear, to pay attention to the Word of God. All right, we're going to read this first teaching through in Matthew 13, verses 1 through 8. This is God's Word. Let's read it together, beginning in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house... And sat beside the sea and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and he sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach and he told them many things in parables saying a sower went out to sow and as he sowed some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. And since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And other seed fell on good soil and produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has an ear, let him hear. All right, this is the first time Jesus teaches this parable, and you'll notice, you know, the the gaping thing that's missing. And this first time through is any explanation. He just teaches um, this earthly uh, uh, parable. Um, without explaining any of the heavenly meaning. I want, I want you to try to visualize the scene that those first three verses uh, set up. We have large crowds. In fact, verse 2 calls it a great crowd has gathered around our Lord Jesus Christ. They gather around him to hear what he's about to say. Because no one has ever spoke like Jesus spoke. And so the, the crowds are so great in this particular scene that Jesus takes his place on a boat, turns around, and from the boat begins to preach to the masses on the beach. And that's, that's a vivid picture. That's an amazing scene that there's so many people pressing around him that he's now on the boat, on the water, turned around and addressing these multitudes. And like every faithful preacher before any crowd, he carefully considers his subject. He carefully considers what he's about to say. And his particular topic in the form of a parable is about farm life. And so the crowds gather around him. He takes his place on the boat. They're on the beach. And he, and he begins to preach to this group about the farm. Now this is fitting in this particular society this agrarian culture that he's speaking the language of the people he's speaking in terms pictures of their everyday life okay he gets down you know in their everyday life in three different times in Matthew 13 Jesus teaches a parable that's related to agriculture or farm life. And the first teaching that Jesus lays out is simple. Let's walk through it together. A sower going out to sow is a farmer going out to plant seeds. That's how simple this picture Jesus puts before this great crowd. Now, The way seeds were planted in this particular time period has been called the broadcast method. And so the picture here is this. You got this farmer with this bag full of seed. Somebody's moving. I'm not moving. Uh, This is my SOS help. (laughs) I need to cut this off. Okay. Okay, broadcast method. Get back on track. This farmer has a bag of seed strapped over his shoulder, and he's walking around just casting the seed far and wide indiscriminately. This is the picture that Jesus uses in this parable, and he highlights four different types of soils. Okay? Four different types of soils that the seed Lands in. Now let's walk through these together. Pull our attention back in. We got a lot of ground to cover this morning. This first trip through is this simple picture of farm life. The first soil in verse 4 is the seed that lands on what Jesus calls the pass. And what this is, is there's no fences, you know, in this particular culture. um, There's no fences to mark off, you know, your field from your field. And what we have instead are these paths. They're boundary markers for a field, and they're beaten down. They're trodden down because of heavy foot traffic. This is how you get to and fro from, you know, one place or the other. And that first picture is some of the seed lands upon that that dirt that's been packed down that's as hard as asphalt, and it doesn't penetrate. It just sits on the surface of that hard soil. And Jesus says the birds come down and devour it and eat it as food. The second soil, in verse 5, is the seed that lands on what Jesus calls the rocky ground. And this is not so much, you know, uh, a picture of a field with pebbles kind of scattered, scattered all throughout. Um, this is a picture of uh, something really common in Israel, are these large slabs of limestone Um, Just below the surface of the soil. So you look out and you see this field and it looks fine. It looks great. But if you were to take a shovel and just jam it down in the dirt about three inches, maybe five inches, six inches down, you'd hear this bang. And you would run into this large slab. This is the rocky ground. Now, what Jesus says about the rocky ground is if you plant seed in that ground, it immediately springs up. But the problem is, is that as that plant grows, the roots try to go down into the soil. That's what roots do. And it can't because of this large slab underneath. And so the roots uh, remain shallow. There's no depth to the roots. And then the summer sun rises, and those roots can't go down where the moisture is in the soil. And the summer sun scorches this plant, and it dies. The third soil in verse 7 is the seed that lands among what Jesus calls the thorns. And what this is, is this uh, perennial plant in Israel that dies back every winter. We have plants like this here. Uh, The root underneath the surface of the earth remains alive and every spring. It shoots back up all across Israel. These are the thorns. These very aggressive, invasive plants... And what happens is anything planted um, among the thorns. The thorns are aggressive; they they compete for nutrients, sunlight, water, you know, all the minerals in the soil. And the effect is anything planted among the thorns uh, doesn't bring forth any fruit because of the competition. They're fighting for sunlight, fighting for uh, root space. And then the fourth soil that Jesus mentions in verse eight is the good soil. And Jesus says, this is the only, you know, one of the four that Jesus says, the seed brings forth fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some 100-fold. So we have a varying degrees of harvest, but but that's all a really good crop um, in, in, in this imagery. Now, step back, okay? Okay. Um, that scene that was created in the first two verses and then the, the, the teaching that Jesus gives, they don't seem to match. And we spent some time on this last week as Ron taught us about the purpose of the parables. In other words, if you take a step back, that's all fine and good. Okay, um, Everything that Jesus said is true and that's all fine and good to have a little lesson about farm life. But the unexpected thing is, is that's not what you would expect Jesus to say to large crowds of people who are gathered around to hear his teaching. And then the you know, he's talking about something more, something deeper, because in verse nine, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear. But that's all Jesus says to the crowds. That's all he says. In other words, there's no explanation. I want to take a step back and I want to press in to what that reveals about the nature of King Jesus. And so one of the things that we have learned as we come through Matthew's gospel is this uh, heightening tension that's been happening. And it comes to a fever pitch ahead in Matthew 12 of These crowds who are gathering around, hearing Jesus' teaching, and rejecting it or not responding to it, you're seeing the Lord Jesus in Matthew 13 take a more severe posture in His teaching towards these crowds. And what we've been instructed in Matthew 13 is that part of the severity of Christ is revealed that He actually begins to intentionally obscure the truth to those who have rejected His teachings. His disciples say, Why are you speaking to them in parables? And Jesus tells them why He's speaking to them in parables. Now, that reveals something to us about the nature of Jesus. And I just want us to note it this morning and to love it, to learn it and to love it and to glorify Christ. You could say it this way, that, you know, the crowds gather and Jesus gives them the farm story. And then the verse nine, if you have an ear to hear it, then hear it. Shows us that Jesus is not like so many fame lusting pastors in our culture with great crowds gathered around them. In other words, his impulse is to do the exact opposite of so much of what we see all around us. And so think about this. Think about the many examples of this, of fame-lusting ministries that you get great crowds and everything becomes about keeping those bodies in the room. Everything becomes about building that brand. Got to get them back here next week. You know, got to, got to get them a hook. We got to bring them back. We got to keep our crowds. And I want you to notice this about Jesus is he's unimpressed. I mean, he's unsp- you can even say uh, 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 that Jesus doesn't give a rip about large crowds of people gathered around him listening to his teaching with no desire to obey him. It doesn't impress our Lord Jesus and it should not impress you. In other words, if you gave Jesus the choice to have thousands hear Him and not respond to His teaching and just be interested to follow Him and hear about what He's going to say next time, if that was choice A and choice B is to give me you know, 10, 12, or 100, a smaller number of disciples with their hearts set to obey Jesus as Lord, He chooses B every time. Large crowds do not impress our Lord. He doesn't do everything just to keep them there. Just to build His brand. He's preaching the message of the kingdom of God. And He's calling men not to attend, but to respond to His teaching. And so we see His nature revealed. Even in the way that He gives this parable in public to these crowds. It is only the disciples of Jesus that get the explanation of the parable of the sower. Now let's read it. Beginning in verse 18. That section in the middle is the section that Ryan instructed us on last week. The purpose of these parables. We'll jump to 18. The second time Jesus teaches the parable of the sower in private to his disciples. Here then, the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word And immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world. And the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty and in another thirty. Now we say this. All the time, but this is God's word to this local church this morning, and we want to hear it. We want to pay careful attention to our Lord Jesus. Now, I want you to notice that the only thing that each of these four examples in this second round of teaching, the only thing that each of the four categories has in common is that they all hear the word of the kingdom. Of God. In other words, this second time through, Jesus explains that this parable about a farmer planting seeds is actually a story about an evangelist preaching the gospel. And those four types of soil are not actually a story about merely soil, but four different types of human hearts that respond to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is foundational. You remember what Jesus says? If you don't understand this parable, how you understand all the parables? This is foundational in understanding how you come into the kingdom of God. How you respond to the message of Jesus Christ. These four categories describe every person who has ever heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Four times we have that same phrase. Verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom... Verse 22, verse 20, the one who hears the word. Verse 22, the one who hears the word. Again, in verse 23, the one who hears the word. In other words, Jesus is teaching you as his disciples what happens every time that word goes out. That response fits into one of these four categories. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples why this divide has been happening. You know, for two chapters now, two, three chapters, that the, the message of the kingdom is proclaimed, some receive it, some outright reject it, and you've got this mushy, uncommitted middle group. And Jesus is teaching, this is why, this is what's happening in the heart. This explains everything that you're seeing. Now, I want us to take a step back. In verse 19, Jesus says... You know, these are the responses when the word of the kingdom is preached, when the word of the kingdom is heard, it produces these four responses. And it's really important, eternally important, critically important for you to understand what that is. In other words, you know... this. this, File this away in those categories of, you know, words that you can be so familiar with. And then if someone asks you to define it, you really can't define it. You need to know the word of the kingdom, the message of Jesus Christ, the Christian gospel. What is this? What is this message? Because Jesus is talking about these four responses, not to just some generic truth, not to even your testimony, But these are very specific responses to the announcement of the Christian gospel. The good news of the kingdom of God. Now, we read uh, all four gospels and we find out that this message of the kingdom is often on the lips of Jesus. From the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus begins to announce, to preach that You know, uh, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is now at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What is that message? Because if we're going to plant seeds, that's the seed. The seed is the word of God. The seed is the gospel of the kingdom. We got to know what it is. What is this message of Jesus Christ? And the first thing you could say is this. It is a message. The message, the good news of the kingdom, is a message that finds its roots in the Old Testament. In other words, that part of what begins to happen at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry is the announcement of this fulfillment theme. You've heard all these things of old, and Jesus begins to announce, I'm here, that's me. And so think about some of these Old Testament promises that Jesus fulfills. As early as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we are introduced to this promise of God that this offspring of Eve, this offspring of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent. God's people have been deceived by the serpent, the enemy of God, but God promises a ruler, a deliverer, a king will come and defeat the evil one. Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 49, the promise takes the form of the seed of Judah, the tribe of Judah. There's a, a prophecy, a promise that this king will arise from Judah. The scepter will be in his hand. And then it says this, to him will be the obedience of all the nations. Not just this little Jewish Israel thing. There's a king coming from Judah's line that the whole earth is going to bow down to him and to obey him. This promise just continues to grow and to fill up. And the Jews began to refer to this promised one as the Messiah, the anointed of the Lord. It was said to David that a king would arise from David's line that would sit on the throne of Israel that would rule, listen, forever. That there would never be a time where this offspring of David didn't have authority and dominion. Micah the prophet prophesied that this ruler would come forth. Listen, Micah 5.2, from ancient of days. That this one would step out of eternity and into time and be born in the city of Bethlehem. Jesus fills up all of these promises. Isaiah tells us that there was this baby this, th- that we were to expect that was, was to be born and his name would be, listen, Mighty God. And the government would be upon his shoulders. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there would be no end. In other words, this king and this kingdom was prophesied over and over and over. In Daniel chapter 7, the promise was that this son of man Would approach the ancient of days, and the ancient of days would give to the son of man the kingdom of of God, and that kingdom would be established forever, and it would break into pieces all the kingdoms of the earth. And so, you know, what is the message of the kingdom? First thing you need to know is this: the fulfillment of all of these promises. In other words, God made these promises of deliverance to his people. Jesus comes and he fills them all up. And so Jesus begins to preach in his ministry. We're no longer in the time of expectation. Jesus says, The time is now, the time is fulfilled. He says, I'm the king, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But how is this good news? And that's the phrase that the Gospels use. The good news of the kingdom of God. Because think about this. The one thing that God's word says we all have in common is we are sinners. And not just in this vague general sense. We have rebelled against our God. Or even to say it more sharply, we have rejected the authority of our king. And so if you think about it long enough, you might be a little perplexed about Okay, the one who I've rebelled against finally arrives. How is that good news? How is that good news that the king with all authority is here? Well, Jesus begins to preach this message of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, that he's come to to win salvation for his people. He's come to deliver his people from their sins. And he begins to announce this offer of salvation in the form of the kingdom. And he tells us the way into the kingdom. It's through repenting and believing the gospel. Turning away from our sin, denying ourselves, and putting our trust in King Jesus. How you respond to that message is the most important thing about you. In other words, if you're you know, taking this survey of I want to know myself rightly... The most important thing to know about yourself is how you respond to that gospel, that message, that announcement, that good news of the kingdom of God. And Jesus gives us four categories. This is revelation from heaven. This is not, yeah, that that seems to make sense. You know, we did a sociology survey and and it just so happened, man, everybody seems to fit in these four categories. It's not like that. This is revelation from heaven that Jesus says these are the four responses to the Christian gospel. And so let's take them one by one. First, verse 19 is the hard heart. And this is like the seed that falls on the path that 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 trodden down, hardened, packed down dirt that the seed falls and it never penetrates and the birds come and devour. These are hard hearts. Hear the gospel with a hard heart. The heart is hard because it's been trampled by sin and unbelief. And therefore, it is resistant to God's word. The glorious gospel of Jesus doesn't penetrate this first category because of hardness of heart. And so what happens is the word, the message of the kingdom, it doesn't penetrate. It just sits on the surface of that heart. And then all of a sudden, Satan comes in and snatches it away. That's why people hear the gospel all the time and give almost no thought to what they've heard. They don't even remember it sometimes. Satan comes and snatches that seed away. Every time you see someone reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is what is happening behind the scenes. The undercover story. The seed came, the hardness of heart didn't let that seed penetrate. When Jesus says about this category that they don't understand the gospel, this is not just this intellectual thing. Like, hey, could you repeat that, what you just said about Jesus? I didn't quite understand that. This is not what he's talking about. It's not mere intellectual understanding. You can understand the facts, the bullet point outline of the gospel. That's not the understanding that he's talking. He's talking about a spiritual understanding. In fact, look at, look at back in verse 15 of Matthew 13, when Jesus quoted that Isaiah prophecy. And in verse 15, he uses that word understanding. And in verse 15, we see clearly that understanding is something that happens not in the intellect, not in the mind, but in the heart. They didn't understand with their heart. It's the whole person is involved with this understanding. And and even more than that, we find that they didn't understand with their heart. And if they did, it would have done what? Verse 15. It would have caused them to turn from their sin. In other words, a true understanding of the gospel is something that happens in your heart that causes you to turn away from your sin and towards the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul gives uh, probably the clearest description of this person in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, you have Satan involved in this blindness snatching that seed, and then what are they blind to? It's not so much. You need to learn this You can draw false comfort in this intellectual understanding of the gospel. I understand the gospel. You might say, I know we're sinners. I know Jesus came to save. I know he's the only one to save. I know he died as a substitute. I know he was raised from the dead. I know that works can't save and faith alone in Christ can save. And all those things can be true. And the God of this age can blind you very specifically to the glory of Christ. And so the thing that is not perceived by this type of person. Now there are you know, mental categories that can be misunderstood that we need to fill out. But the, the understanding that is lacking in this category is they can't see glory. They're blind to glory. In other words, they hear the message of the kingdom and the announcement of Jesus Christ and they don't perceive the value in just a few verses, Jesus is going to tell a parable about the kingdom, that the, the kingdom of God is like a pearl of great price. Another parable is that the kingdom of God is like this treasure that is hidden in the field. And the point is that the Holy Spirit opens the eyes and brings us to the point that we see not just truth, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, But we see glory. We see the value of the gospel. We see our tremendous need of our forgiveness of sin. And we perceive the value of Jesus. I'll sell it all just to have the field. Just to have the treasure that is Christ Jesus. This first category is an inability to perceive the glory of Christ because of hardness of heart. This plays out every week in the church. It plays out every time you know the gospel is shared. These are the categories. This is why you can sit under biblical preaching or a friend that tries to love your soul and turn a conversation towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're really honest, you catch yourself always floating away to worldly things. What's for lunch? What did I forget to do this week? Did I send that email or that email? The reason you're doing that is because you're blind to glory. It hasn't arrested your attention. You don't see the tremendous value that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is that hard heart like the seed that falls on rocky on the paths. The second category, verse 20, is the superficial heart. These are those who respond to the gospel in a superficial way, but they lack depth. They're like the seed that lands in the rocky soil where there's just a few inches of, you know, soil. But you take that shovel and slam it down and their heart is just as hard as the first category. There's just a covering of dirt on top. Shallow commitment to Jesus Christ. Unlike the first category, this is the revelation piece where we're learning from our Lord Jesus. Not everybody outright rejects the gospel. And you can do that by saying, man, I don't want anything to do with that gospel. Or you can reject the gospel by saying, what's for lunch? I'm bored with this. I don't care about this stuff. This category actually initially receives the gospel in a superficial, temporary way. Jesus says they even receive it, listen, with joy. Which tells us that that is not an infallible mark of true conversion. Emotions are not an infallible mark of true conversion. Otherwise, that initial joy would have equaled, man, they're saved. In other words, Jesus, you know, the angels of heaven really rejoice when one sinner repents, but sinners can repent in a superficial way, which is fake joy, causes no joy in heaven. This person hears the good news about Jesus and immediately accepts this gospel temporarily and the superficialness of their conversion is not immediately known to others and that's a that is a sober warning that you know and this even played out in the 12 apostles at the last supper Jesus announces a traitor in their midst It's an amazing thing that they didn't know automatically that it's Judas. They didn't know automatically. Yeah, it's that guy in the corner right there. They asked Jesus, is it me, Lord? Who is this traitor? In other words, there will be responses to the gospel that will not be immediately discernible as false professions of faith. Jesus says they endure for a little while. And that means some time goes by. And that might be a year That might be 30 years. Some time goes by. They endure for a little while. As opposed to enduring to the very end. They don't persevere uh, in faith in Jesus Christ. They endure for a little while. And Jesus tells us. What finally flushes this person out. What finally makes it clear. Jesus tells us that life gets hard. Affliction. Suffering. Persecution comes on account of. The word and this person's professed allegiance to Christ floats away like the wind. They are unwilling to persevere with Christ. One teacher summed it up in this way The beginning of their agony for Christ's sake became the end of their allegiance to Christ's authority. They were fair weather Christians, they would serve Jesus as long as Jesus. You know, gave them what they thought they needed and did what he thought they should do. But when times got hard, the nature of their faith was revealed and they renounced Christ in the midst of trial. And this is something important for us to learn as the body of Christ that we have. We, we really have these um, uh, competed, competing warnings. That might not be the right way to say that about how we care for others in suffering better way to say it is there's two ditches that we can fall into. We have the warning in the book of Job not to be like Job's friends in suffering. We're called to compassion. We're called to bear with, to strive with those who have the arrows of the Almighty within them. They are stung and by the providences of God. And we bear with them. We weep with those who weep. So you, you can make this error and you don't do that. And you're like Job's heartless friends. We have this other category that Jesus reveals that one of the things that causes people to walk away from the faith is trials and hardships. Which means we got to walk right in the middle of these two ditches. In other words, suffering is a time to, to weep with those who weep. And it's a time to speak the truth to your suffering neighbors, your suffering brothers and sisters. This is a warning. That a trigger point to cause someone to walk away from the faith is suffering. God takes something from them that they don't think that God should take. And they become angry with God. It's a dangerous situation. Suffering, hard times, trials. They test the nature of true faith in Jesus Christ. And one of the characteristics of faith is it perseveres to the end. Not perfectly. Nobody believes perfectly. Nobody repents perfectly. But the nature of saving faith is to not only initially respond to the gospel, but to continue to cling to the Lord Jesus. You're a lifelong repenter. You're a lifelong truster in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, you persevere with Him. And man, it is so encouraging to be in a church and to walk with Christ And you get, you know, a year under your belt and then five years under your belt and ten years under your belt. And you see the providences of God come wave by wave. And you stand back and you watch brothers and sisters suffer tremendously. And it's so glorifying to Christ that things are taken from them, their health, their family members, their circumstances, And it is so encouraging to the soul to see someone worship Jesus in the midst of pain. It glorifies God. It glorifies God. And we see it all over this church. We even sang about this this morning. That in the midst of sorrow, um, God is sovereign over us. He's working out His plans in our life. And that unbelief that that would cause us to turn our backs in anger upon our Father has to be repented of. We have to cling to Jesus Christ. Third category is the divided heart. In verse 22. These are those hearts that are filled with the weeds of the world. So again, they respond to the gospel. And something pops up. But it's not the only thing that pops up. The weeds of the world are growing right beside this profession of faith. And they're like the seed that is cast Among the thorns. Again, like the second category. They initially receive the gospel. They initially respond. But they do so with an unrepentant heart. They never repent. Just like the thorn root that hides underground to the next spring. This person's allegiance to sin has never been broken. They try to come to Christ without repentance. They try to have You know, they're God's and Christ too. They never deny themselves, but they try to come after Jesus. They never take up their cross, but they try to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The root was not dealt with in their initial coming to Christ. Therefore, it produced a false conversion. And again, the true state of this heart is revealed over time. Over time, it becomes clear that there's divided allegiances in this person's heart. They desire to have Christ and the world. They desire to have God and money. God and mammon. And Jesus says you can't serve God and money. In other words, part of Jesus' teaching is this mutually exclusive swearing of allegiance to Jesus Christ. In other words, when you come to Christ, you swear allegiance to him as king, and you renounce every other authority. And you're saying, well, that sounds like you're preaching sinlessness. No, it's not that at all. It means that when your sin manifests itself, you've already decided on the front end, Jesus is king. I swear allegiance to him. He is my final authority. And when I sin, when my sin manifests itself, I confess it, repent of it, and I come to my king. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. His Lord. Notice the two phrases in this passage that describe what occupies this heart in place of, instead of, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says it's the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. You could call that the weeds of the world. These are the things that Jesus would have you understand this morning that will choke out the the life of the gospel in your heart. The cares of the world. Now, that phrase is terrifying because of how comprehensive it is. And I want you to just think about that for a second. Jesus could have put his finger on blatantly sinful things. And that's true. The cares of the world certainly include blatantly sinful things. Like a heart dominated by the pursuit of money or by sexual immorality. But that phrase is broad enough to cover just the normal you know, cares of normal life in this creation. Jesus has already addressed this back in Matthew 6. What shall I eat? What shall I drink? What shall I wear? In other words, the the decisions that you make every day that are just a part of life in this creation, life in this world, can dominate the heart to such a degree. It doesn't have to be blatantly sinful. It can be deceptively idolatrous. Anything can go under this category that dominates the heart and the mind in the place of Jesus Christ. And this is terrifying. That you can be consumed with the world and never visit a pornographic, pornographic website. All you think about is your to do list. All you think about is your own selfish little plans, your selfish little to do list. You're so at home with the things of the earth that you have so much trouble transitioning to the things of heaven. You got no more room in your heart for God because the attention that you give to this worldly stuff like a seed among the thorns, it's choking it out competing for nutrients competing for water it's crushing the root space of the gospel in your life that's a terrifying phrase the cares of this world can be anything the heart can be dominated by sports people will go to hell for as things as neutral as sports or shopping or family or friends or pets or recreation, or jobs, or social media, or hobbies, or other things. Insert anything in that category that can take the place of Jesus Christ, the cares of the world. People who come to Christ without ever repenting of these false gods, and that's exactly what those things are, that dominate the heart instead of Christ. People who come to Christ... Without ever repenting of these false gods are false converts. This is the teaching of Jesus. And it's revealed by their lack of fruit. In other words, how do you know? Jesus says the thorns are there. They choke out and this plant is unfruitful. They don't have any fruit. All they have is a profession. They don't have spiritual fruit. There's no life, spiritual life flowing through this person. Because their heart is divided between God and God and the world. These are divided men and women, part-time followers of Christ, carnal Christians that are no Christians at all. This is the third category. Number four is the good heart. In verse 23, Jesus says this person understands the gospel. And we just come back to that, you know, same word that we talked about before. Not Gospel facts recited understands the gospel spiritually perceives the infinite worth of our Lord Jesus Christ that they counted all joy to be crucified to the world and the world crucified to them they counted all joy to lose everything and to have the Lord Jesus Christ good soul they perceive glory And you know, as you walk with Christ, whether it's as a preacher or a church member, you begin to understand by experience. You see these categories play out over and over again. It's like a doctor who graduates med school and he's got all the categories there. But then he begins to amass this, you know, decades worth of case wisdom He's seen this before. He's seen it play out over and over and over again. And some of the reason why these things shock us is because we haven't been walking with Jesus long enough to see it play out over and over and over again. And so we see this by experience. And it's exactly as Jesus said, that when the Word is preached, you see it so often. Some outright reject it. Some hate it. I don't want anything to do with that gospel. And there are degrees of responses. You know, how many times have you heard something like this? You know, what you said was interesting. That was interesting, what you said. In other words, my interest is piqued. And I'm not saying that every time that phrase is used, it reveals, you know, bad things. That's not what I'm saying at all. But is that all it did was interest you? The teaching of Jesus Christ, the proclaimed Word of God is just interesting to you? Or what about a step further? You know what you said, it makes sense to me now. I've been thinking about it, I've been thinking about it, and boom, it finally made sense to me now. This is that that Eureka response. Like, the only thing wrong with you is that you just lack information, and then boom, you automatically understood it. Eureka, makes sense to me now. Another response is, I think I'll try that out. Sounds compelling. You know, you said it would work. You said it was the word of God. It would never fail. I think I'll give it a shot. Try it out. But praise God, some say, I see glory. That word of the kingdom of Christ was proclaimed in my life and I saw uncreated everlasting glory Jesus is the treasure in the field and I'm going to leave everything I'm burning it to the ground I have what my soul desires I've been wandering through the wilderness of this world uh, weary for rest and and I found what my soul longs for the Lord Jesus rest for my soul I'll never be the same I will entrust my eternal soul to the God of this gospel. All in. The dice cast, the chips are all in. Jesus says that's good soil. That's the good soil response to the gospel. They understand it. They perceive it. They act upon it. And this is true for every Christian. One of my favorite stories of membership interviews that we do at this church is every member that comes into this church is interviewed by a pastor, and you hear a range of testimonies um, all over the place of different, you know, means, uh, different experiences that God, you know, brings this brother or this sister to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I remember uh, a sister telling her testimony to me and my family at a restaurant, um, and she begins to describe. Growing up in a godly family, and hearing the gospel, and at a relatively young age, coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. She never killed anybody, she never did drugs, but she began to be disturbed about how offensive her life was to God. That she didn't love the Lord her God with all of her heart, with all of her soul, with all of her mind, with all of her strength. She broke the greatest commandment in the entire universe, habitually, over and over, and it disturbed her. She began to weep as the gospel became precious to her at this young age. And I'll never forget my son. We were preaching through the book of Acts at the time, in Acts chapter 2, where... The crowds respond to Peter's gospel and it says they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. And I remember him him saying to that sister, it sounds like you have been stabbed in the heart by the Holy Spirit of God. And that's the truth for every Christian. That's how the good soul happens is something... From another world comes into this world. It is supernatural power. It is new creation. It is the same power that was manifested in the first creation. Manifested in the new creation. God caused light to shine in our hearts. And we see the glory of Jesus. In other words, all all of a sudden the thing that we didn't care about. Becomes the most precious thing to us. In the whole world universe, the good soul, this person has counted the cost. There's no shallowness in their profession of faith. They obeyed Luke 14. They counted the cost. This person has repented of sin. There's no thorns choking out the life of the gospel and the effect of the gospel being received by this type of heart. As Jesus says, they bear fruit. It's the confirmation of It's the seal of the Holy Spirit in our life, that fruit of the Spirit, the fruits of regeneration, the fruits of righteousness. In other words, there's this infallible principle in the kingdom of God. That seed is so powerful, the power of God for salvation, that when it comes into a heart of good soul, every single time there will be fruit. And not only will there be fruit, Jesus says some 30, some 60, and some 100-fold. Average crop at this time was about 10-fold. All of those examples of Jesus are of this uh, wonderful harvest from this one seed. In Genesis chapter 26, we are told that Isaac sowed in the land in that same year by the hand of God, by the blessing of God, he reaped a hundredfold. In other words, a hundredfold increase is is like the supernatural hand of God. It's so evident that what just happened in this harvest is nothing to do with you. And that's Jesus' point here. Jesus describes... This fruit bearing in supernatural terms. Yes, there will be varying degrees of fruit in the Christian church. But even though not all Christians have the same degree of fruitfulness, all Christians have a fruitfulness that cannot be explained by human means. In other words, the Spirit's testimony seals that work in every heart. And every Christian is a walking miracle. They have supernatural fruit coming out of their heart and out of their life that human strength can't account for it. Making a really good decision can't account for it. The only thing that can account for it is the kingdom of God is within them. The living, powerful Spirit of God lives within them. And this is part of our examination as followers of Christ that we are to examine ourselves if Christ is in us, if this profession is, is bearing the appropriate fruits, and this is Jesus' and this last category, that fruitfulness is a mark of true faith. It doesn't make you a Christian. It reveals that you are alive in Christ. It reveals that the power of the living God is at work in your life life. John 15, verse 2, Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, just an aside really quickly. Think of the implications of this truth for church membership. If Jesus is saying a Christian is not just someone who professes to follow jesus christ a christian is someone whose profession bears fruit and that's supposed to be the representation of who who is in jesus christ is the members of the church So, so think about this we're not just saying raise your hand if you believe in jesus and want to join this church we have a responsibility to dig in and to and to see if this person understands the gospel We have a responsibility before God to see if this person has counted the cost of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus. We have a responsibility to at least ask the question, Sir, ma'am, what difference has the gospel of Jesus Christ made in your life? And as we hear those things, we have the responsibility to boast in the grace of God, to celebrate the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. So in summary, Jesus teaches that the only saving response to the gospel is the description of that fourth category, the good soil that bears fruit. The first three categories show us different ways that the gospel is rejected, yet all three of those categories are unfruitful. So you have three categories of rejection, and then you have three categories of fruitfulness. There's a fittingness here. Okay? Now, Sometimes you may hear it said, well, I understand that first category is not a Christian. I'm not real sure about that second one. seems like they're not. But but man, what, what about that third category? Maybe they're maybe they're Christians. And this is what Jesus is pressing against. This is this is the law of the kingdom of God. This is why if you don't understand this parable, you won't get any of the other parables. If you don't have the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life, it means not that you just lack fruit. You lack root. It's a deeper problem than lacking fruit. And so these first three categories are describing an unbelieving response to the Christian gospel. They do not persevere to the end with Christ. Now, this is clear from Jesus' teaching. Okay, And I want to encourage you to be bold with this truth. This is not one of those like, well, man, some people think it's this way and some people think it's this way. Be bold. Your Savior is giving you revelation from heaven. Stand on it. In other words, put this in that filing cabinet of things that you're willing to die for for Jesus' sake. That it means something to be a Christian. It means something to have Jesus Christ alive in your heart. It means something. He's a king. He is a living Lord. Be dogmatic about this. In other words, dogmatic is not a bad word. Die for it. Put your feet in the concrete of God's word. Stand on it and preach it to the end of your life most important takeaway from this passage is identifying which category you fit into and one of the most precious gifts you can be given in that first category you're just bored with Jesus Christ is that gift of clarity when God makes it clear that's you right there that seed that's you you say well man how is that a gift Because it helps you know what to pray for and to cry out to God for mercy that you are in tremendous danger. That something supernatural has to happen in your life or you'll die blind, you'll die deaf and and bored with Jesus. It helps you know what to pray for. And the same with the second category and the same with the third. If you're angry at God and God makes it clear to you, it helps you know how to repent. Lord, take this sinful anger out of my heart. I want to grieve at your feet. God, break the grip of the world and the things of the world in my life. It's a gift to know which category you're in. Several points of takeaway, I'll mention these quickly. Is this parable ought to provoke you to be something? And the first is to be biblical. And what I mean by that is we learn from this parable that God has chosen his word... As the appointed means of salvation. In other words, we don't get to pick what the the means is. The seed is the word of God. That's already settled. We just submit to it. We need to be biblical. Our job is to plant the seed. The message of the kingdom of God. To sow it indiscriminately far and wide. And to trust God for a harvest. In other words, when we meet obstacles in evangelism and we see negative response, negative response, negative response, the problem is not the seed, the problem is the heart. We don't adjust the gospel. Never, ever. It's the power of God unto salvation. Beware of attempts to modify the seed in order to change human hearts. And again, it's a joy being a member of a church where you look out and you can see over and over saints, Brothers and sisters resting in the sufficiency of the Word of God. It glorifies Christ. They're leaning hard against Holy Scripture. Be biblical. Number two, be warned. We ought especially to feel these warnings about turning from Christ and trouble. Or loving the things of the world instead of God. One commentator said it this way. Either trials or pleasure. Either one can kill you. Trials can cause you to forsake your Lord. And pleasures can cause you to forsake your your Lord. And we need to be in prayer for our shepherd to keep us. Keep me, Lord, firm to the end. Number three, be encouraged. Jesus says in that fourth category that there will be fruit. In other words... Fruit is not something that you can ask God for and just maybe he gives it, maybe he doesn't. You can trust that the seed of the gospel will bear fruit in your life. There's an infallible principle here. So trust God and resolve as a follower of Jesus to be as fruitful as you possibly can because it glorifies God. It doesn't glorify you. You can't bear that fruit of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15. Verse 8, he says, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Be fruitful. Be encouraged that God's plan for your life is to make you like Jesus. Be encouraged. Number four, be humble. In other words, what is the proper response of being good soil?" It's not, man, I'm good soil, and you're rocky soil, and I'm something, and you're not. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus said these words, Blessed are your ears, for they hear. Not awesome are you, for you hear. In other words, when you hear, you've been blessed by God. That's, In other words, to say it backwards, the only reason that you hear is by the blessing of God. It's all by grace. Back in Matthew Chapter 11, we are those little children whom Jesus has revealed the knowledge of the Father to. We are little children. That's all we are. Everything is of grace. No grounds for boasting. If you believe the gospel today, you, you believe it because your blindness has been overpowered. Your deafness has been overpowered by the powerful grace of God. He calls light to shine out of darkness. And if grace is how the Christian life begins, then grace is how it will be completed. It is true forever that no human being will boast in the presence of God. Let's pray. Lord, we call on your name this morning. And we honor you, Lord Jesus. You are our teacher. You are the king of the kingdom of God. And we ask again, Lord, that you would cause your Your word to bear fruit in this church, in this gathering, for your own namesake. Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.